0: You're going to see eating disorders, no matter where you work.
1: Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders. To those of us who have been around for a while,
2: I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a
1: certified eating disorders registered
2: dietitian and supervisor.
1: And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true
2: professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Megan Niskern, Registered Dietitian, Certified Eating Disorders Registered Dietitian and Supervisor is the coolest professor I never had. She's the owner of MAK, MAC Nutrition Services, and works with clients providing professional supervision and precepting future registered dietitians. She is also a senior lecturer at Arizona State University, teaching management, leadership, professional preparation, basic nutrition courses, along with a graduate eating disorders and substance use disorder course, which she developed. So today she's going to talk with us about Seeing eating disorders no matter where you work as a registered dietitian or any of us in healthcare, sometimes we just aren't taught how to identify eating disorders and when we see it we can be afraid of it since we don't have the practice. She was talking about, and this is why I think it's so cool, in her basic nutrition class, the reviews at the end of the semester is about making personal nutrition less scary and being able to feel more at peace with their body and carbohydrates. She said students don't know how to eat and can be genuinely terrified. And she includes body image and weight stigma as requirements within her basic nutrition course all the way to food service management, which isn't typical. There's a great part in here where Abby gets a little bit of supervision. She said, what do I do when the doctor sends my patient to me Do we talk about weight loss with our clients and patients? What do we do when a patient's been sent by their doctor to lose weight? And Megan's advice to us about the best way that she feels to help our patients' clients feel the most comfortable. And then kind of a final piece to those of you dietitians who are coming into the field, whether you're still in your internship and you know you want to work in eating disorders or are brand new in the field, don't kill yourselves trying to learn everything in the first year. Oh my gosh, there's some really good dialogue between Megan, myself and Abby, just about like how overwhelming it can be and what's important, right? And, and being mad at yourself not mad, but mad at what your upbringing has been that you have to teach yourself some of these things. So Megan has a course coming out. And, and at the time we recorded the podcast, it was before summer. So she didn't tell us what it was. But I'm here to tell you what it is. Oh, my gosh. So she can still be my professor. She can still be your professor because she's on launching an online training in September of this year. It's titled, Deepen Your Perspectives, Nutrition Therapy for Mental Health. You can learn more about that at makrd.com or join her newsletter entitled Munchies. You can do that by DM on Instagram or via her email at megan.nutrition at gmail.com and Megan is M-E-G-A-N love the title of that course. And just knowing Megan, I would love that course. So I still may be a student of yours, Megan. All right. Thank you. And all the rest of her bio is in the show notes. There's a whole lot more there that I didn't cover here.
1: Megan. Hello. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you, Abby? I'm doing well. First of all, it's very nice to meet with you. I have heard so many great things. I've listened to you on podcasts. And so having you on today is so exciting for Beth and I I know that you and Beth Already have a lot of history together, but I'm so fortunate to get to talk with you today.
0: It's going to be fun.
1: <laughs> and we are going to start out with just a couple of
2: icebreakers before we go into some of the questions. And we just want to hear all about you, how you got into the field, what you learned in undergrad, what you've learned now, what you wish you would have known, all of
1: that. But, uh, Abby, go for it. Okay. So, mountains or beach?
0: Uh, beach.
2: There we go. (laughs) Okay, Abby, there's another one. I'm a mountains person, but
1: Abby's,
0: yeah, with you. I'm a water person. It's like water, water, water.
1: Mm -hmm. I agree. I grew up being around a lake. And so, I mean, a beach is probably better than a lake, but yes. (laughs) Okay. And then my second one for you breakfast or dinner? Uh, uh, I don't know why that one's really
0: hard. You're not alone. Out with my husband, I'm going to pick dinner. Otherwise, I'm a breakfast person.
2: <laughs> that one's actually one that stumps more people than anything. So yes. I think yeah. it makes sense. If you said
0: brunch or dinner, I would have been like brunch, you know. Brunch but brunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: exactly. And then the last one is audio or paper book?
0: Paper. I like, yeah, paper, although I do the audio and I listen to podcasts, but there is nothing like holding a book. Yeah. I did the Kindles for a while and that wasn't the same either. Like I need to
2: touch it. Yeah. And this is what we're kind of bringing together more seasoned RDs with newer RDs, but everyone in the eating disorders professions, we're bringing in physical therapists, medical professionals, Therapists and all ranges within this podcast. So, we're also talking about back in the day, there was just books. There wasn't such a thing as audiobooks or Kindles or other things. I'm going to maybe traumatize you and bring you back to exam day for your RD exam. Dude, what do you remember about that day?
0: Oh my gosh, so, so funny. Not traumatizing, thank goodness. But I took it in the summer after I had defended my thesis, which took a year after my coursework. So my level of readiness was at a thousand percent, like just give me this damn exam, and i w- i will I will give you my soul. I remember that my first question was a question on management theory, which I was just like, why do we learn management theory? And now I teach a management class. So I teach the class that teaches management theories. And I was like rolling my eyes at myself. But what I remember the most is there were three eating disorder questions on the exam and they were multiple choice and they were wrong. They were wrong questions. And I'd I'd already been working in the field for about a year and a half as soon as my internship finished uh, eating disorder facility that I had done a rotation with offered me a job that I didn't want. And I'll get into that later, but I did take. And so I had been doing the eating disorder stuff for a, a little over a year. And I knew I had to answer the question wrong to get the question right. <sighs> and I think they were test questions. Like, I don't think that they were questions, you know how they put in new questions that don't go against your score. I'm pretty sure they were that because I got a great score, but I was like, I can't believe I have to have an awareness to know that this question is worded in a way that they think is right. I don't know who they is at the time, and but it's not, you know, and oh. so I remember leaving there thinking, wow, like I got a master's degree and I went back to school. My undergrad is in pre-law and criminal justice. Like this was not my avenue. So I had to go back and take all those DPD courses. And I actually just went into a master's program. Thank goodness. Speaking about back in the day, it was not that competitive. I got right into ASU's program. Now... Holy cow, so hard Mm -hmm. to get into their master's programs and match and all that. I got right in and I had to take a ton of DPD coursework because Mm -hmm. I didn't have all of those those courses. So Mm -hmm. so I just leave this huge education I'm so excited about. And I was like, I don't know anything about this eating disorder stuff. And this is now my job. You know, Oh,
2: this is exactly what we're hoping you can bring for people because, well, first of all, can you tell people what DPD stands for? What is it? Didactic practicum?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. I say it all the time. And well, what does it
2: mean? So, if- the
0: yeah. So those are the, the designated courses that any college education program has to have in order to qualify for being an RD-based program, right? So to become a registered dietitian, you have to complete specific coursework that's approved by ASCEND, and ASCEND is the accreditation, big umbrella organization, and I could not tell you what that stands for.
2: It's, yeah, I think I remember-
0: yeah, A C E N D. So we'll give you guys all mm-hmm. kinds of acronyms, and we'll put what show notes, <laughs> with them in detail here. But, but what I what, what I what I said earlier about who the they was that was getting these questions wrong. These are the theys, right? So these that now days. We know where the theys are. And one of the things that I've loved about my path and being seasoned, which I'm now going to use all the time, is. I've had a few different experiences now that I work in academia, right? So now that I work at Arizona State University, where I got my undergrad, not at all again on my, or my graduate degree and not on my path plan, but now I've seen how it all works and it makes so much more sense to me. As to why the questions were wrong in the first place on that Mm. exam that I took and as to why we're missing out on this really critical education in the DPD, RD, registered dietitian, nutritionist education track. Like the system isn't wrong. It's dated and it's not catching up fast enough. Mm. I mean- you know my thirteen-year, fourteen-year career. Now you're right, Beth. We went from one book written by Marcia Heron, nutrition the, uh, nutrition
2: Therapy for eating, yeah, eating, disorder. eating disorders.
0: Yeah, I have it in my office. And now, oh my gosh, there's five webinars a week. They're free. There's multiple books written by registered dietitians. Like four came out this year. Heck, I mean, you know, so we're we're it's amazing how far it's come, and yet. We're still as a profession really behind the curve, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. So I do want you to tell us your path. You, I mean, I think yeah. that this, the questions that you saw in that test ultimately led you to doing some of the education and, and yeah. protecting and, and teaching the way that you do, but pre-law and criminal justice.
0: <laughs> so I went to Northern Arizona University, which is in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I loved it. Small school in the mountains, which was great. It wasn't in the middle of the heat, you know, so I could be up there. And I was going there to specifically be in their physical therapy program. They had a very good physical therapy program before the physical therapy degree became a doctorate program. I was doing their three year program. So I was going to get my undergrad in three years. I was in the program. And my sophomore year, I could not pass kinesiology. Like I literally couldn't pass the class. It was based off of three exams and the exams were multiple, multiple choice. So any of the multiple choice answers could be right. My anger level at this just assessment tool system, I took it three times. And this professor just would not, I mean, you the material, I just could not test on the exams because my anxiety was so high. So I had to go home. It was Christmas break. I remember and reevaluate my life. How could I do, you know, physical therapy if I can't pass a really essential course? And I was really angry at the program. I was angry that the pathway through was through this particular instructor, professor, and I, I didn't like that. I'd never failed at anything either. So it was a really, really big learning lesson for me. I'd always excelled, I'd always had good grades, you know, perfect student, whatever. So it was kind of a good moment for me. And I wasn't that. Angry at myself, I was really angry at the the school. So it was kind of nice that I didn't beat myself up about it. But I thought really hard, and I like to argue, and I like to talk. So I thought maybe I should become a lawyer, and I could stay in medicine and maybe do like medical malpractice or something along those lines. So NAU had a criminal justice pre law program. I joined the pre law fraternity, and I just switched paths. I graduated in three and a half years since I had that change, and I say that because I graduated in December right after 9 So 9 uh. happened. I graduated on December 13th. So for all who remember... The world was shut down, right, in a sense that we were going about our lives, but you couldn't get hired anywhere. Every place had a hiring freeze. There were strong financial impacts. I'm in lots of different markets. So my plans of getting a job and you know doing work and applying for law schools for a year got kiboshed. I couldn't get hired anywhere for anything, right? So I moved home to Tucson to live with my parents, and I was really depressed, and I didn't know it. I got s- severe depression my last semester in college that I've done a lot of good work around now. And it it was was a great learning experience for me. And I eventually got hired at a place because my good friend from high school's mom was the HR director. Canyon Ranch Health Resort is a top-notch destination resort and spa at multiple locations now in the world. And I got to work there for five years. So I got this little gig setting up presentations, because it's a resort and spa. So it's all inclusive, you're on site. And it was really Kind of ahead of the wellness curve, and they were doing things great. It was actually founded because uh, uh, the owner used to go to fat camps, like adult fat camps, to to lose weight. He called them that. Mel Zuckerman would go to his fat camps in California, and he's like, "This is torture. I hate the food. I'm starving. Why are we doing this?" So he created a resort that just changed the food and changed the experience. And anyway, I got to work there for five years. It was heaven. I got massages on my lunch break. Pedicures after work, and I got to work with a, a team of doctors. I worked in the medical department, the health and healing department. They had four full time doctors on staff, MDs, full time nursing staff, thirteen dietitians on registered
2: staff. dietitians, registered right?
0: dietitians. My first male dietitian ever was he worked there. He'd worked there forever. He was the top dog under the director, you know. And I ended up working as the administrator of this nutrition department as I picked up jobs along the way. And I met so many celebrities. I mean, it was just five years of fun. And I didn't know what a dietitian was until I worked there. And I loved what they did. The cool thing that Canyon Ranch offered was it was prevention or really rich people could use this service as like their main dietitian and medical care facilities, So they would come once a year for their physical and stay for a week and do all the blood work and everything there. And they would see their dietitians, and they were working with people with cancer and they were doing things for people who travel all the time, how to eat and travel and prepare, how to be a mom and meal plan. I mean, granted a very privileged community, but it was a really cool approach to nutrition. It wasn't just hospitals and public, you know, community, public health, which didn't interest me. It just wasn't my thing. It was all these prevention aspects. And Mm so we took interns from ASU. They got to come shadow for a week. And I met the internship director at ASU and decided to drive up and meet with her. And I knew, okay, I'm not going to go to law school, which I applied to and took the LSAT and did the whole thing for a year. I got waitlisted at two and I got accepted to one. I wasn't really thrilled with my performance, but I realized that's not where I wanted to go. I did want to be in healthcare in some capacity. So I packed up, moved to Phoenix and got my, my degree. And as I mentioned, the end of my internship, I was offered a job at an eating disorder treatment center at their IOP level of care. It was a brand new program that they really needed a full-time RD to help manage. And three of us just made that program. Oh my gosh, took three years. And we, we made that program huge and it was wonderful. And eating disorders was never on my radar, just wasn't on my radar. And I ended up getting two great locations in my rotation for my internship because Arizona has a few really you know, key treatment centers out here. So my path was completely unintentional. And I really just want to offer up to I guess, and I talk to my students about this a lot, is like, what you think you need to do is great. But like, what opportunities present can also really help to guide your path. Like, I didn't know that I would even be good at this. I didn't even know I would connect with this. And I'm glad I just let myself be open to the idea of it, right? It's been phenomenal. I'll tell you.
2: I love this whole, well, first of all, I need to make, let you know that I do have a connection shortly with Canyon Ranch because I was a dietetic internship director. I converted an AP4 program that that was back in the day, approved professional practice program. It was an AP4 to an internship. And then one of my students had wanted Canyon Ranch as one of her experiences. So she reached out, she, we were able to work it out and she brought me back a t-shirt.
1: Oh, so that's right. how
2: I know about Canyon Ranch. And I love this whole statement for your students. What opportunities guide you? Because that's how Abby and I started working together as she reached out to me during your senior practicum. And you just never know. I've heard so many dietitians say, I wasn't planning on eating disorders or I was as far away from it as I possibly could be. And then when they land in it, this is what, again, what connecting here through the podcast, through all these webinars that you're talking about that are out there for us. It's finding your niche within that. And you're the educator. So I love how you tell your students that. It's the opportunities that can guide. I just have found that kind of, I don't know, life engages
0: with you in a capacity to, you have to respond to it, right? Like there's holding out and there's, I know what I want to do. And there's working towards a dream and that of course do all those things, but Along the way, other opportunities are presenting that we sometimes choose to ignore because it's a little different or a little scary. And for those that don't, you know, see eating disorders as a part of their path, that's fine. I find now I am consulting with students all the time who are very interested in doing this work specifically, right? Whether it's eating disorder, mental health, behavioral health, substance use, those avenues are really of interest to students right now for so many reasons. How many people in their lives have struggled the need for supporting these communities there's just so much out there. So I find there is a subset. It's people are like, I really want to go. I want to do eating disorders. Like that's all I want to do. I'm in, I get it. Like I know. And then there's people who are like, ah, that seems really intimidating and scary. I don't want anything to do with it or I've never heard of it before. And I don't even know it's around me, you know? And, that's yes just, it's harmful
2: <laughs> that is a big thing we don't even know it's around us is there something yeah. that you share with your students about yeah. I mean that? yeah
0: all of my classes regardless so when I teach I teach a basic nutrition which is mostly health students so not dietetic students but like nursing biomedical engineering pre-med all that. So basic nutrition class, they get so much eating disorder education throughout the semester, they will be aware. They learn about diet culture. They learn about diet messaging. They have to break down articles that are inaccurate and why they're inaccurate and become critical evaluators of nutrition information. So if I teach my management class, which is part of the DPD coursework, you have to take a management nutrition class, management and leadership. We talk about all the different fields, all the different avenues that you can work in, and that wherever you end up has crossovers. So if I work in the capacity of being a specialist in eating disorder work, I'm still going to deal with people that have MNT issues, right? I'm not just talking to them about their food relationship and their behaviors. Like, I have to navigate certain health ailments, so I need to stay up on that as a part of doing what I'm doing. And I think people see nutrition in the areas that they work in is too narrow because the people in the, that are coming to you, they all have different nuanced relationships with food. You're going to see eating disorders no matter where you work. Mm-hmm. And so why we're not educating on that period end of story right now is a capacity of neglect and a little bit of doing harm, right? Because mm-hmm. we can be doing that now. 10 years ago, it would have been a lot harder for us to figure out where to incorporate this into, you know, our coursework. And now I'm like, give me a week and I'll tell you where we can do it.
1: And I was listening to the podcast you did with Heather Kaplan um, and you or one of the other guests on there mentioned something about, you know, we as dietetics professionals, we have to know about how the kidneys work and proper care for the kidneys why should it not be the same for eating disorders? You know, it's, it's still a health concern. It's very prevalent. And so I'm so grateful for professors like you that are sharing this information because, you know, unfortunately we don't get enough of that. How does what you're teaching to your students compare to what you were receiving in undergrad relating to eating disorders, or did you even receive anything?
0: That's a great question, Abby. So, yeah, I, re- I remember the day I got it. that It's usually in the counseling course that we take as dieticians. You take a counseling course and you learn how to do counseling skills and, and that kind of thing. But it was really something I remember taking away. I don't know why I even remember this, but I remember taking away, wow, it feels really narcissistic, right? I'm just like, ah, oh. so. Obviously, the way that I was taught the information was not done in the capacity for actually helping me to grasp it. And Abby, I use this analogy a lot when I talk with professionals and students and being a little critical openly of what the education system still looks like regarding, I think we could do eating disorders, body image work, and people's relationships with their body because it's so interconnected to their relationship with food. And I think we could bring in weight stigma, right? And and what that looks like into a really easy course of like mental health, eating disorders, body image, and weight stigma required. Like, boom, you've got it all in one place. But but it's hard to teach these concepts because we we have created a system that teaches about the systems. It doesn't bring in a lot of avenue for nuance. So we learned all about cirrhosis of the liver. This is, I say this all the time, all about it, how we treat it, what you need to do and ascites and like, you know, high protein for this person and low sodium over here and fluid restriction and all those things. Well, if they're a chronic alcoholic, you're not going to get them to do any of those things. Their taste buds are destroyed. Their knowledge and understanding of food is gone because they haven't had to fuel their body for months, years, decades, right? So great, I guess, that when a person's acutely in the hospital, I can do my best to fuel them in a capacity that's going to help. But the reality is, is there's so many other side effects that come with somebody's that having you know alcohol cirrhosis. And we didn't we didn't learn about that, so like, it's we're really at such a, a deficit in having a, a conversation with people about those relationships, those food relationships, right? Like, we were taught about the diabetic exchange system, but then not really taught about all of the different components that could be present presenting with somebody who's a diabetic. Like, you know, what is their access to food? What is their knowledge to food? Who are the people that purchase and do the food in their home? What is their socioeconomic status related to like all of that matters? Who cares about the exchange system? Like, Yes, it's great and helpful. But if we can't just get the person to eat any of the foods they need to in the first place, counting grams is not helpful.
2: Yeah. And we're not taught about weight stigma, which is in type one and type two diabetes. And I still don't I'm scratching my head when I meet someone who has had has type one diabetes and how they think it is their fault. And so this that's probably the basic. Any discipline that we are interviewing on this podcast will have the same story, Megan. And that's what we're hoping to change is they got 15 minutes in undergrad on eating disorders or they got, whether it's medical, nutrition, therapy, whatever, we're not taught that. And even when, even if it were taught in the best way, in one program, maybe like yours, or the, I know that there's other programs that are doing good work, but it's still us fighting the Western medicine mind frame.
0: 100%. And which is why in that basic nutrition class that I have, which I had 130 students this last semester, so I've got a pretty good size that I'm able to influence. Yeah. My reviews at the end of this semester aren't oh, I really liked learning this or that. It's, I don't hate my body like I did at the beginning of this class. I no longer fear carbohydrates and understand where they fit into my life. I no longer will use social media to think that I am inadequate. You know, I'm like, not kidding. I go to look at my student evaluations because that is what the entirety of my 241 stuff is. Thank you for teaching me how nutrition can be applicable and less scary. I mean, we're raising, aside from what we're doing to our actual students in these systems, right, in these programs that are very weight-centric and very weight stigma-oriented, we're also doing a strong disservice to the entire way we talk about food in the public forum. I mean, students don't know how to eat. They genuinely are terrified. Mm
1: -hmm. Terrified. And how interesting, because you go into these courses, obviously as a teacher. So you, you know, you would think you're, you're teaching these students how they should talk to potential patients they might have, but it ends up resonating with them as individuals so much. That is so, and I mean, I would have loved to just have you as a professor. I think that would be amazing, but something I have been dying to ask you because as a new professional in the field, I'm starting to feel really confused with this. So, I'm learning more and more about eating disorders. I'm getting into supervision with Beth. You know, I'm getting into all the right steps to work with eating disorders. But I still get a lot of patients who come to me and want to talk about, well, how can I lose weight? So maybe they lost their job. They've been very sedentary through COVID and weight gain happened that way. Or maybe they had a baby a few months ago and they're really struggling to get back down to whatever their normal size was. And I'm, I get confused because I go from learning about eating disorders to then these individuals. And I, I don't know exactly the right response because I want to validate their feelings and can weight loss be an appropriate thing to discuss and to help an individual with, as long as we're doing it in the right format, of course, like anti-diet and all of those things, like an intuitive approach but I don't know if I'm right or wrong by saying like, yeah, of course we can talk about weight loss.
0: You have to talk about weight loss, right? So, I mean, it's on everyone's mind all the time, no matter what size body they're in anymore, because again, it's what our society puts out there. I am never of a capacity of encouraging or promoting weight loss. And the reason for that is, is, intentional weight loss done through the intentional capacities that we have been using is 95% unsuccessful. Like no one's even disputing us saying that now. And I say us in that capacity because it took me a long time to really get to that place. I spent a lot of years legitimately in the field of eating disorders thinking if you're in a larger body, you've done something to get like you ate your way there or you did this or you did that. And I have now worked in this field for so long and I've worked in this field at the capacities of inpatient where we are in full control of what they're eating and how much they're moving and what they're drinking and the body doesn't always want to change. And I know that people are in larger bodies that eat just as quote unquote average as other people do not in larger bodies. And so my discussion with those who continue to really be focused on weight loss is what is it going to fix? And what is wrong with the body that you're in right now? And What really comes from that is a capacity for contentment. Because when you're on a mission for weight loss, it is the constant thought process. And that has really in the research demonstrated to us that the negative impacts that come with constantly feeling like your body is wrong and you need to fix it. I want to bring in a really, oh gosh, thank gosh my mom doesn't listen to podcasts. When I write my book one day and my mom's all over it, she's going to be like, what? (laughs) And then I'm going to be like, you have no idea how many stories I've shared in public forums about you. But my mom, she's really had like a person that grew up in, in the sixties and seventies. And then in the eighties, when we had the anti-fat phase, she really embraced the anti-fat phase in my youth. So I didn't eat any food with fat and I did snack wells. And I did all those, you know, those things. She still buys a lot of the lower fat, cracker options. She says she likes the texture. I don't know, but she really embraced that. And she's in a small body. She's got a lot of orthorexic tendencies, but what? regardless, she ex- over exercises and is just very aware of her size. And we were having a conversation about weight and that kind of stuff very recently, in fact. And she said, I just don't like the way I feel in my body when I gain weight. Like, I just don't like the way it feels. And I was like, nobody does. Nobody likes when their body changes. Of course we don't. And society tells us that when we can feel our body, right? When we can feel the roles, when we can feel things touching, that's wrong, period. There's no way around it. And so I spend a lot of time getting away from the idea of weight loss and what it's going to solve or what it's going to fix. And instead think of How else can you spend your time productively? What else can you change around your eating patterns that you're uncomfortable with right now? Like regularly skipping breakfast despite the fact that you're hungry. What are breakfasts that you can start eating that you enjoy? I find so many people that want to talk about weight loss are really just looking for permission to eat and needing permission to to not be afraid, not be afraid that they're making bad decisions all the time.
1: True. I guess part of the reason why... I get a lot of clients who come, they're referred by their doctor. So maybe they were recently diagnosed with diabetes and doctor says, well, you have to lose, you know, 20 pounds and then your A1C is going to be fine. Then your, your blood glucose levels are going to be fine. And so they come to me and they say, I have to lose weight. This is what my doctor said. And then we go through the whole protocol and everything. And they, at the end, they always ask, so this is really going to help me lose weight. And that's where I'm like, (laughs) I'm really trying to steer us away from that, but I am finding it more and more difficult when not all of us as healthcare professionals are in a line. I
0: would, I mean, those are the moments where I'm reaching out to the doctors and saying things like in order for this individual to accomplish what you've asked weight wise, it's it's disordered eating patterns. You know, they're already eating Mm -hmm. in a way that is meeting their needs. And so for us to focus on weight loss, I don't think is helpful. Right. So I would maybe even do a little bit of coming back from like a professional standpoint and educating some of those doctors, because I think it's a mainstream recommendation, right? Like not to get too generic here, but doctors get very specific on just recommending weight loss with no, no idea how to do it. They're just going to throw it at you and make you be burdened by this. My grandmother is 88 years old and she has been trying to lose 10 pounds for as long as I can remember as long as I can remember. And I am like, grandma, it doesn't matter. You've been in the exact same body for as long as I can remember. You've been trying to lose 10 pounds for as long as I can remember. And in fact, when I asked her, when was the last time you weighed, whatever that value was, she told me 1977. Wow. And the reason she's so worried is because her doctor will tell her, oh, we don't want you to be pre-diabetic or you're getting pre-diabetic. And then she starts eating carbs. So Mm. like, it's really important to do the best you can to provide your clients with the education so that they can go back and also advocate a little bit for themselves. But in those avenues where you are seeing regular referrals coming in from other health professionals, there are ways to kind of subtly provide education on, on the way that things are working and the way that nutrition works without saying like, it can be really harmful for you to tell people to continue to lose weight. And they throw out random numbers, like 20 pounds. Like
2: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Megan. I'm so glad that you provided this as going to the source, it's to the doctors, because our patients, we do have to, our clients, we have to prepare them for this, that they're really like the earth is not flat, it is actually round, weight loss may not be the biggest issue here and it mostly isn't and going to the source of the doctor so that your client your patient can then start to read those books that you're talking about that came out from dietitians like anti-diet and the wellness book that's coming out and some of the other i don't know if you want to share any of those but also you said you were doing a little bit of supervision for abby you're a supervisor right
0: I am a supervisor. So,
2: what do you want to tell us about supervision? About any kind of hot topics that your supervisees are asking or going through?
0: Yeah, I love my supervision aspect of my career. It's the most fun, and it helps me to just stay connected to all different areas. I I get to supervise people all over the. The country, so I get to see different trends and different things that are happening as legislature changes in different states, or as COVID was impacting different states differently, or they were handling it. So I love that I really have this perspective, and I try really hard to bring that into my supervision sessions. Right? Is like, ooh, you know, let you know other people are seeing this. One of the big things that everyone is seeing right now is a huge influx of need for adolescent support around eating disorders at the outpatient level of care. It seems as though the young adults are in high crisis right now. And I say that from like the age of 13 to, you know, really the early college age is what I would say. Not to say that adults aren't also in crisis, but I have never had so many supervisees calling me saying, I am getting adolescent referrals constantly and I wasn't planning on working with adolescents. Can we talk and can I get help? And so I would say that has been a huge theme over the last four months specifically mm-hmm. since really the beginning of the year. But and, uh, the whole thing is, is it changes, right? It's always changing. Beth. So you always know what's going on. Yeah,
2: Beth. Yeah, I mean, it is always changing. And and are there things that they're telling you that they learned in their upbringing and their um, not necessarily just undergrad, but that they would like to change?
0: Oh my gosh. All of the supervisees that I work with come from a place of, I either learned a little bit about this because there was an instructor or a class that I got that gave me a little bit and I was like, whoa, or they're really involved in in social media where you can get a lot of good access to a lot of this information, right? And the avenues to learn more about it. Or they're completely blindsided by feeling like they are leaving this extensive education process and they're having to relearn how to do an entire field of dietetics that they were given no exposure to. And I, I just got I started working with a new supervisee who was referred to me by another supervisor who's on maternity leave. It's just like, it's a community too, right? This is not competitive. This is all about being helpful. My supervisees are not mine. They can leave me anytime and go work with someone else. And I encourage them to do, you know, diverse exposures to supervision. But she she has obviously been doing supervision and we just met and we finished our session and she was like, I am so mad that I have a master's degree in dietetics and I've spent the last two years teaching myself how to do this work through a weight inclusive approach to care, to dismantling the diet culture beliefs that these individuals have. And I need to learn how to do acute eating disorder support. You know, that's like really where she's at. She's like, I wanted to talk to you because you've been in treatment centers and now I'm getting into treatment centers and I'm so, you know, she's like, this is happening and that's happening. And I'm like... We can do all this. Like, let's yes. just talk I about
2: it. Love that whole and the whole idea of having more than one supervisor. It's kind of like with our clients. We want them to find the right spot. And if somebody is working in a university setting in account university counseling, then maybe me or you while you are working in a university. But what I'm saying is that their different supervisors have different levels of experience. And so I will always have, I'm not a sports dietitian. So I will send, if, if there's issues or concerns with uh, athletes, then I'll connect them with a certified sports dietitian who is also a su- certified supervisor.
0: I completely agree. You know, the athletes, the endurance sports, the really intense, you know, capacity for that, the PCOS stuff, there's a Mm -hmm. lot really interesting, you know, a huge subset of PCOS and eating disorders and disordered eating that I'm not as familiar with. And I know requires more knowledge. So there's, Mm -hmm. there's so many avenues of specialty, even within our specialty, right?
2: (laughs) I don't even think you've heard the intro to this um, podcast because we are haven't officially rolled it out yet but I use that exact sentence. there's so many specialties within the specialties. I also use what you said earlier which is now there's all kinds of education for us there's there's books, there's webinars there's ways that we can connect and um, so we are on the same page with that.
0: And, you know, I tell Abby Abby, to tell you too, as a new professional, I tell all my new supervisees and even students that are finishing, you know, and getting ready to go out into the workforce, don't kill yourself trying to learn it all in your first couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. Because I see that so many people are like, there's books and there's webinars and there's trainings and there's EDRD Pro and there's this. And no you'll be okay. You're already ahead of the curve by having awareness and knowledge of these things in the work that you're doing. You don't have to do it all right away. You know, I'm still learning. The cool thing is now I can be like, oh, I have to learn. I have to learn this new thing. Okay. I'm just going to put it on my list. And then when I have time, I'll get to it, you know, mm-hmm. because this work I, I, there's like a criticism of the word burnout right now, but I don't know what else to use. So this work can cause burnout because we don't do enough to take care of ourselves. Treatment centers can burn out providers, you know, mm-hmm. um, but we have to be really careful. And I don't say that as a criticism. I say that as a reality, yes. right. Having done it long enough, but private practice can burn you out too. So mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It is really about like taking what you can take and not feeling like you have to do it all at once.
1: Well, and so a big part of this podcast is, is of course for health professionals, but also for newer people in the field, new people coming in. And we don't get that in undergrad all the time. You have to take care of yourself, set these boundaries. You're going to have burnout if you don't, all of those things. So it's great to hear somebody seasoned, you know, just say it's okay. You don't have to know at all because I I think a lot of, I mean, at least I do, I feel like I do. I, you know, because I, I see a three-year-old with constipation to an eight-year-old with diabetes to this, to that. And it feels like I do have to know everything. But it's nice to know that you don't. So
2: I love it. Don't kill yourselves trying to learn this. And I had a therapist, I'm in peer consult groups as well with therapists, dietitians, and sometimes psychiatry. And I remember one of the very seasoned therapists that as in my my group saying that when she first came out into the workforce, that her supervisor told her, don't shoot your whole wad in that first session. (laughs) It's like we have all this great stuff. And like, I have a client just a couple of weeks ago who said, I want to stand on a rooftop and shout all the knowledge that I know and all the freedom that I have from not weighing myself four times in an hour. And she's in that non diet, Abby, that you were kind of questioning. And everyone will say, I will say, almost everyone will say, I need to lose weight. And so, one of the things that we do as an intuitive eating counselor, as an eating disorders dietitian, is Ask them, can you put weight loss on the back burner while we work on your relationship to food? This particular person just wanted to shout it to the rooftop. So I just wanted to share.
0: And I I was just meeting with a completely different person a few weeks ago. And what they were telling me, they're like, I, I, I'm in the middle of this training, and I started this training and I did this training, and I was like. Oh my gosh, I don't like you can absorb all of that knowledge and that's great, but why are we doing it all at one time? You know, yes, you just get one client that needs this and one client that needs that, and you feel like I gotta be perfect at all of it, just like listening, and it's like you're gonna be okay.
2: I honestly like that reason for supervision, because it helps bring something huge into that smaller, like, okay, I had a supervisee say, I need to learn about trauma. And as uh, she's a dietitian. And uh, yes, that's an important thing to be aware of. You're a fairly newer in the field dietitian, let's focus on the client and let the therapist focus on trauma, but you learn as you go. And it's that like, you don't have to take a five-hour course in trauma and eating disorders to do this. So supervision helps people kind of narrow the focus back to that client. And I, I'll give an example of, um, I had a patient whose genetics profile said that she or hyper produces dopamine. And so she's more anxious than an average person. I started to go down the rabbit hole of her genetic the paper that she gave me and trying to learn what I could about this diagnosis. And I told the therapist, I said, I just ruined that session. This was within the last month. And I've got almost 30 years of experience with eating disorders that I sat there and I thought this client thinks I'm an idiot because I kept talking over myself. So I got supervision from the therapist and and she just said, Beth, she came to you. All of our clients have different levels of anxiety about food. Remember what you know. So it really is back to the basics of helping her look at her food, look at her eating, look at her relationship to food and her body, and doing the very basics of, guess what, the very first thing we need to do is try to regulate your eating throughout the day.
0: And there's always going to be something new. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's remarkable. And one of the things I think I love about this field is there's always something new that's coming mm-hmm. out or that's being looked at. Right. And at, for 30 years in the field, do you feel like you've seen it all yet? I mean, yeah. <laughs> she's shaking her head. No, I because no I, I, you know, I still think I've seen most of it. And then as soon as I think that something new happens and I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going (laughs) to not do that again because our experiences are so unique, right? And our journeys are so unique so that there's never a capacity for comparison. It is just different avenues of approach every single time.
2: Absolutely. Our journeys are so unique. And that is another thing that we need to be aware of as professionals is is how we show up in the room, our experiences in life. And you've shared some family stories and and Abby and I have shared different stories. And so how we show up as a clinician in that office also is something we need to be aware of. And then all all of the training that's available to us, like, I'm just love this quote of yours. Don't kill yourselves trying to learn this in the first year. Like, I love it. It gives me a sense of peace and calm and like, thank you for that.
0: We're going to, we're going to all be okay. And, and again, I, I, I want to just really encourage that use this work as an opportunity to do the work on yourself. I feel like I have had, you know, 14 years of free therapy in certain ways, working with the providers and learning in this, in this capacity about myself, my family dynamics, how I raise my kids, like what I do. Mm -hmm. I, this career path has been, again, just enhancing my experience and my capacity to care for myself and that's why I'm like, don't use it in a negative, you know, use it as a, use it as a positive what you learn in this field.
2: Yes. And when you said earlier in this interview today, you've done a lot of great work in your past. You were, you described how you felt depressed and part of your program and training, but then you've done your own work. There was something that came out, I believe Anna Sweeney put it out, that I wish that people would talk about mental health in the same way they talk about how how much weight they pumped at the gym. So mental health to all of us as clinicians, as professionals in this field is so important. And I'm really glad that you brought that up, Megan, that you've done your own work because I really firmly believe I've done a lot of my own work and I still reach out to supervisors and my own personal therapist in ways that I, so that I can show up for, for my client, for my supervisees, for everyone in a way that's, that's helpful. Okay. Thank you. So
0: this all day, right? We
2: could do this all day (laughs) and with you all day for weeks at a time. Abby, I think has kind of a wrap up question for you. And then we want to make sure we know how to get a hold of you and if what you want people to know.
1: Okay. So I think this is going to be an interesting answer coming from you because you started really in eating disorders as a dietitian. You got right into it. But my question for you is if you could, you know, take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now?
0: I thought I was going to, I joked when I took the job, I actually had a job at Phoenix Children's Hospital that they rescinded because they had changed their policy to not hiring RD eligible. And I needed like a couple months to take my exam. So I took this job reluctantly and I said to myself, I'm just going to spend all day telling people to eat and they're not going to want to eat. And I think that the thing that people do the most wrong is oversimplifying this work, right? And if you're someone who tends to be you know, deeper in thought and who tends to really want to evaluate things, who's maybe a little creative, you get to be so creative with the interventions and the support that you offer to your clients in this field. I just think that it can be one of the most wondrous growth opportunities as a human being and in how you support others in this work. And I think that's the roots of like what my career path ended up being is I connected to this work on a personal level and my relationship with my body and how I grew up and what was going on that I didn't want people to also continue to have to feel that way. And obviously they feel way worse than I did. So how can I help? I think that's it. I assumed that it was a lot more straightforward than it is at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. And I was right. It was, you did have a very interesting answer and perspective, but I love that. And just like we mentioned, I could, I could just sit here and talk to you all day. And I do appreciate you answering my questions selfishly. These were things I was actually curious about, but I think that newer professionals in the field are going to face these same things. So I total I mean Beth and I, we totally appreciate all of your time. We know that you're a very busy individual. But for those listening, how can we get a hold of you? Different platforms that you have, all of those things.
0: Yeah, so my website is a great spot. It's just macrdmak, which are my initials.com. I am mostly on Instagram. I it's my family, it's my life and it's my work. It's all one cuz that's just how I see it now. So you can see a little bit of all of me if you want to find me on Instagram and it's Megan Niskern. And it's Niskern with a K. My K is silent, like knife or night. <laughs> I went from Williams to Niskern and I'll, I spend my whole life describing my last name. So I think those are the two best avenues. I have some exciting things happening this summer. So more information will be coming out about that soon. Yeah.
2: Oh, so we're, we are on a cliffhanger. We don't get to hear about it today.
0: <laughs> not quite. Not quite. Okay. Almost there. Okay.
2: Awesome. Well, we will make sure to put that in the show notes and then we can follow you to see what's coming up in your world this summer. All right. Thank you so much, Megan. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at slash professionals.